You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Jason Lingstorff. Jason is a developer advocate and senior engineer working on Gatsby. Jason, you want to say hello and talk about what you do? Yeah, I am a DevRel. I I do developer relations, and um, I largely do that through a internet TV show. Um, (laughs) I stream live on Twitch a couple times a week, and I pair program with people from different communities. And the goal is to learn something new. So we call it Learn With Jason. It's a build something from scratch in 90 minutes show. And the intention is to, um, you know, show that yeah, I've been doing this for a long time, but I actually don't know very much of anything really in the mm-hmm. grand scheme of things. So I bring in an expert and they teach me something and we see what we can build. Um, and that's kind of a, that's that's across a lot of my work is is that idea of how do we make this stuff more accessible, make it less intimidating and try to, you know, welcome as many people as we can into the, into the industry and get them trying stuff, you know? Yeah. I, I, I can relate to that because I also don't know very many things. How did you, how did you get into that, that developer relations space? Um, kind of, uh, it, it was a, a very kind of organic move. I originally started out as a freelancer, and this was back in the the early 2000s. I was in a band, and we couldn't afford any kind of help, so I just started learning stuff. I, I mm-hmm. was our business manager. I was our booking agent. I designed our merch, and then I started working on our website. That turned into a skill set that when the band failed, I was able to move on and and get a job you know, selling websites to people. My, I, I did freelance web dev forever. Um, mm-hmm. and so part of that of course is, is learning how to talk to people and explain the value. So it kind of started there. I, I was learning how to talk about the value of web design, the benefits of one approach versus another. Uh, from there, I, the agency got to be a little bit too much for me. I didn't feel like I was getting to build things. I felt like I was only doing the, the admin stuff and the managerial mm-hmm. work. So I sold the agency and did some contracts for a bit, ended up at IBM. When I was at IBM, I was a front-end architect. And my my day-to-day was kind of internally doing developer relations. I did a lot of internal education. I built internal tooling. Um, I worked on just trying to make the the experience more consistent across teams and and you know putting up the right guardrails. I, I call it making the right thing the easy thing, where mm-hmm. we want we want developers by default to make the right decision. So how do you do that? And again, that's sort of developer relations things. How do I communicate in a way that someone on another team will hear and want to follow? They'll see the benefit. They'll understand why it's valuable to do things the way that that we're recommending. Um, so then when I one of the projects that I took on as an architect at, at IBM was working on front-end performance. And that led me to uh, experimenting with Gatsby and on a call with the Gatsby team, I realized that they had gotten funding and that they were looking for uh, people to join their team. So I actually joined Gatsby as an engineer. Mm-hmm. But when I got on the team, 
it looked like the the biggest gap that we could fill was how do we talk to our community? How do we treat our community? So I did a lot of work helping define Gatsby's core values. So we we talked about what does a Gatsby community look like? And we we were like, well, I mean, there are a lot of people on the internet. Why don't we want, we should make sure that Gatsby's community looks like everyone on the internet. It should represent everyone, um, all skill levels, all backgrounds, you know, anywhere you come from, whatever you believe, you should be able to show up and, and do cool things with Gatsby and be part of our community. So we defined um, a, a philosophy of the, we just, we kind of summed it up as you belong here. Anybody who comes to Gatsby, anybody who wants to work with Gatsby, we firmly believe like you belong here and you should be part of this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, as we were working through this, I was building demos. I was trying to to make things more accessible, and and it just kind of naturally became like, oh, I'm doing developer relations. I'm not really an engineer. I'm not working on Gatsby's open source core. I'm not working on the commercial products. I'm working on, you know, making the community healthier and and helping demystify some of the more complicated things about Gatsby or clear up messaging so people understand what it can and can't do. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that that grew into a lot of conference talks, but those weren't particularly, they, that travel was taking a big toll on me. Um, mm-hmm. So then I got into podcasting and live streaming. And and now, you know, that's really, I feel like the, the majority of what I do these days. What part of that do you find the most fulfilling or just exciting? I mean, I think the thing that's the most fulfilling for me is when, um, if I have somebody on my live stream and they teach me something and I have that aha moment where I'm like, oh man, this was amazing. I can't believe we got this to work. And then later I hear that echoed by people who watched and then they tried it themselves and and they had that aha moment as well. Um, or when I see somebody say something like, oh, I watched, I watched an episode of Learn with Jason and it made me feel so much more confident in my abilities to see that somebody that I would call a senior dev is still forgetting how things work and having to Google and hitting these bugs. So watching that process made me feel like I'm not such an imposter. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I would never consider myself to be somebody that you should like look up to. Um, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I mean, I have a weird thing about like, I don't like it when people put position themselves as leaders. Right. But I, I think that in a certain sense, we're all, everybody who's on Twitter and everybody who has a platform we're leading by example. And mm-hmm. what I, what I really like about learn with Jason is that, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not trying to tell people how to do their things. I'm trying to do my things. And I hope that what I'm doing provides value to someone else. And that the example that I'm setting helps people, you know, build better code, treat themselves better, get involved in more communities and and see the value in just, not just the code itself, but in the the interactions and the 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 possibilities of of really getting involved in a community. I, I kind of agree with that sentiment. That's a lot of what this this podcast is actually. I, I am openly asking people that I look up to and people I see as successful engineers questions about their career so that I can learn and I'm recording it so that other people can learn. And one of the things I try really hard to be open about is that I don't really know what I'm doing. And a lot of times I feel out of my depth. So a lot mm-hmm. of my questions are fueled by that. And you mentioned people feeling kind of like imposters. Is that something that that you dealt with in your career or is it something you still deal with? I mean, so this is, it's an interesting thing because like I have a, an enormous amount of privilege in that I, you know, if somebody is 
like looking at me in a crowd, they they'll point at me and say like, oh, that's the developer. Right. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't have, I, I don't even know how to begin to understand what it must be like for somebody who doesn't get that stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that being said, I, I have felt like, you know, if I'm sitting in a room with, with a bunch of developers who have worked on things that I've heard of, like, you know, you're, we're in a room with the core react devs or with somebody who works on the, the Linux kernel or somebody mm-hmm. who like invented, uh, you know, TensorFlow or whatever. And you're like, man, I am nowhere near in the league of, of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember I sat down once with, uh, Benedict Muir and Franziska, uh, I think her last name is Hellman. And they work on the the V8 team, which is like the the JavaScript performance engine in Chrome. And I just like, I was like, oh, this is going to be a fun conversation. And then they started teaching me about what they were doing. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, <laughs> I'm like four levels below where I need to be to actually keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel that a lot. Like there's so much happening and there's so many smart people doing incredible things. And I have no idea how any of it works. Like, you know, I, I think about it sometimes like, yeah, sure. I can do a whole bunch of stuff with JavaScript, but if you show me bytecode, I don't know how that works at all. If you move me over into Python, I've never used Python. I don't know what it looks like. Uh, mm-hmm. and the same with the vast majority of languages. I've never used objective C. I've never used Java. You know, I started in PHP. I got pretty good at HTML and CSS. And then I moved over to, to JavaScript when PHP, you know, I was like, oh, well, Node can do a lot of the stuff PHP can do. And I kind of know jQuery. What if I wrote everything in the same language? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know those, but like, again, if I go even just a few inches outside of what I would consider to be my area of expertise, I immediately feel like I don't have any, I've got no, you know, I'm completely unqualified to be there. I have no, I have no business like offering an opinion and I just kind of feel, you know, like I'm happy to learn, but I feel really out of place. And, and yeah, I, I feel like that's kind of, I kind of dodged that question a little bit, but <laughs> what I'm, I, I guess, so here's what I would say. I, I think that I am, I am confident in my ability to do the things that I know how to do. And I try not to beat myself up for not knowing all the things that I don't know how to do. And I think that my, my imposter syndrome is the fear that I don't know something that I'm, that I, that I don't know. And that I am like actively making a fool of myself by representing knowledge that I think I have, but don't have, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So as someone who gets in front of people pretty frequently, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, I mean, I, I would say the, the biggest thing that I've done has been to remember that all I'm really doing is sharing my experience. I don't have secrets. I don't have rules. I don't have, you know, strategies or whatever. I have, I have things that I've done that work for me. And so if somebody asks me how you should get started in tech, I will tell you my story. I won't tell you how to do it. And that has been really helpful for me because I'm not representing knowledge. I'm representing experience and that changes the conversation. I'm not saying I have the right answer. I'm saying that I figured it out and you can take or leave the strategy that I used because that was mine. It's not yours. Um, hopefully what I have to say is, is useful in some respect and you can listen to my story and get some ideas about how to move forward and how to, how to solve or, 
or move through whatever challenge you you caused you to ask me that question. But ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, I I'm not going to attempt to represent that I have definitive knowledge of anything. Um, and that that tends to help me deal with it because then I then I don't find myself in a in a position where I feel the need to try to represent that I know something when I might not. Um, because I know my own story and I, I, you know, it's hard to, you know, I, the, I think it's important to recognize like people, people feel what they feel and people have lived their own experience. And so I, I can tell you my story. And as long as I don't grow my story beyond myself and start making sweeping pronouncements about my, my lived experience should be your reality because I had a good time. That's a ridiculous mm-hmm. thing to say. And as long as we remember not to do that, as long as I'm saying, yeah, I did this, it worked for me. I hope it's helpful to you, but it may not be the right solution. That makes me feel so much more confident having these conversations because I'm not, you know, I'm not telling you to do a thing and then you might go try it. And it turns out I was wrong. Um, I'm, you know, I'm giving you context and you can choose to do with that what you will. Um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And interestingly, in my experience, this industry like really rewards people with strong opinions and uh, not jerks necessarily, but people who are really outspoken. So it's interesting that you're in that community facing role and you're actively trying not to be someone with those strong definitive opinions. Have you encountered that tendency in this community? And what has your response been? I mean, there's so it's hard with any community because every community has the know-it-alls or the people who they're, they're new and they're excited and they're learning and they want to share that. And they, you know, they want to, they want to represent that they are learning, right? So they want to sound mm-hmm. smart. And so they word things as facts when they are opinions. Um, I, I've talked about this before. I've got a blog post that I've written on it that I call the learning trap. And um, the, if you, if you look at like the stages of learning, and th- this isn't my research, this is somebody else's. The mm-hmm. uh, the four stages of learning are unconscious incompetence when you don't know that there's a thing that you're bad at, conscious incompetence when you realize there's a thing that you're bad at, and this would be like learning to code, right? When you take your first step into JavaScript and you're like, I have no idea what this means or what any of this does, that's that's conscious incompetence. And then there's conscious competence. And for me, this is kind of, this is the trap because when you start to gain competence at a thing and you're very conscious of the thing that you're learning and the thing that you're doing, this causes a lot of excitement. You are now starting to feel a level of control over something that you didn't previously know. So if you're learning to dance, you're learning to code, you're learning to cook, you know, when you take that, that meal where previously you cooked it and it was burnt and inedible. And the first time you cook it right and you get that like perfect loaf of bread and you look at it and you're like, man, I just made bread. The instinct is to have that experience and think, now that I've made one loaf of bread, all of my loaves of bread will be perfect henceforth. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that conscious competence. So you you start to fall into this trap and it can make you kind of um, like for a while you can be pretty insufferable because you have you have learned a thing that worked and now you want to share it and usually due to excitement and a lack of of experience you will present this very forcefully and and very um 
you know, you should do this or else you're wrong. And I think that that's a lot of what happens in, in react. And I don't want to, and, and like, I feel like this is dangerous ground, right? Because I know, I know so many people in this community and, and I don't want this to come off as like, I'm speaking about an individual or even mm-hmm. a group of individuals. I, this is a general human observation. Um, when, when we learn something new and we get excited and we are in a position to tell people that a thing is working, like I'll, I'll give you an example. When I was younger, I did this uh, ridiculous diet where a friend of mine worked for a bodybuilding magazine and they were like, oh, if you want to lose a bunch of weight really fast, you should drink just whey protein shakes for like (laughs) three weeks. And I was like, okay, I'll try that. And I was young and I didn't have a whole lot of anything else going on. So I could throw myself wholeheartedly into doing this and I did it and I lost a ton of weight and it made me miserable and sick and whatever. But after I was done, because I had lost that weight, I never mind that I'd gain it all back later. But during this window, when I had just lost this weight, I told everybody that they needed to do this diet. And if they disagreed with me, I would tell them why they were wrong. And it was because I was young, I had learned something, it had worked for me, and I was really excited and I wanted to share it. But the way that I was sharing was to force my love onto someone else. And, um, and I, and I think that's really what it is. It's a, it's, it's a, it's an attempt to share and an attempt to help that has this additional velocity of like excitement. And for someone who is earlier in their career or, or just someone who is, you know, an excitable person, there's that tendency to kind of overexert, um, that pressure when you're, when you're putting a a new piece of knowledge out there. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I think as, as I've gotten older, I've realized that every single thing that I've ever learned has multiple counter examples where what I did was a terrible idea. Um, you know, a, a good example, of this is like the way that I've handled my professional career. I, I think about the way that I have networked, which is to, you know, just ask for things to tell people what I want and be willing to walk away if they don't give it to me. And Mm-hmm. Um, to, to cold email people and just tell them that I would be good at a thing and they should let me do it. Uh, all of that stuff totally works for me. But again, going back to my privilege, I, it, when people look at me, they automatically assume competence. And if you are not somebody who gets the benefit of doubt there and somebody who's in a marginalized group or whatever, it is terrible advice because mm-hmm. you'll, you'll end up standing yourself up to get hurt. Like people will be mean to you. And so that, and that's just like one of a thousand examples. There are, there are ways that I've architected systems that if another company did that, it would have been exactly the wrong thing for them. And there are, you know, there are simple things like the way that I worded an email that worked for me because I'm me and people have the people that I emailed had context and like, they know the way that I communicate. Whereas somebody else that they know who have, they have different contexts with could use those same words and it would come off totally differently. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, you know, I think it's just as I've, I I don't even want to say matured because I, I still feel like I'm a giant toddler most of the time, but (laughs) as I've, as I've gotten older and I've realized that every success that I have is accompanied by another example where the exact same methods had bad or even disastrous results it it leads more and more to this idea that all advice all success ultimately comes down to being anecdotal 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, there is no formula. There is no guaranteed way to get a solution here. Um, So, you know, outside of the, the raw language syntax, like if you put these braces in the right places, they will work. And if you don't, they won't. Those are facts. But like me telling you that your components in React should be in separate files versus in the same file, that's a matter of opinion. The way that you name mm-hmm. things, it's a matter of opinion. Uh, should you use Redux or not? It's a matter of opinion. There, like, there are great reasons to to both do and not do all of those things. And it very much depends on your experience. So my anecdotal success or failure should really have no impact on your decision other than it's more data for you to say, ah, this system that was like this, that has some similarities to our system, did or did not have success. We can weigh that when we're doing our, our assessment. I'm curious, do you think that that perspective that you've built, is that something that someone could learn earlier in their career? Or do you think it's a matter of experience and like being proven wrong? And if you think people can learn it, like what's your advice to, to building that perspective? I would, I mean, I think that what I would maybe rephrase the perspective as is empathy and mm-hmm. realizing that like the life that I've lived is not the life that everyone else has lived and the situations and the experiences and the opportunities and the hardships that I've had are all uniquely mine. And so whenever I have the urge to say something, I, I just ask myself before I say it, is this a thing that is objectively true or is it just true for me? And from from my standpoint what i've what i've learned is that if i just default to everything that i say is an opinion mm-hmm. and i should never present anything that comes out of my mouth as a as a proven fact then that tends to be a good default because telling a story with a solid moral in it is very rarely a bad idea mm-hmm. but stating a fact that is actually an opinion with a bunch of force behind it that can often cause a lot of problems. Um, and that, you know, so that's, that's something that, I mean, can people learn it? Like, yeah, anybody can learn it. If you've got empathy, you're, you're thinking about like, you're, you're taking your opinion outside of your own brain and saying like, well, how, how does, how does my approach work objectively? And, and how much of, of this person's experience is going to line up with the things that worked out for me. And, and honestly, like how much of my success is luck? Because yeah, sure. I cold emailed people, but I also, I cold emailed the right people. I could have cold emailed a whole different set of people who would have ignored me and my career would be in a different place now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, they say that luck is like when opportunity meets preparedness. And I, I do agree with that to a certain extent, but I mean, luck is still luck. It's it's a random draw. There's a lot of people and a lot of different paths that we can go down. And if I don't knock on the right doors, you know, I'd never know that those other doors were available in the first place. Maybe I never even saw them. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, in in terms of like learning that stuff, I I think that everybody's got their own level of empathy. Um, I think that we can all improve it by being cognizant of of what we're what we're asserting and, and like what we're saying is a fact that's really just our lived experience. Um, and recognizing that like people have entirely different backgrounds and entirely different levels of comfort and the, all those little expertises that we built, you know, the, the fact that I'm good at taking criticism, you know, I have, I I did a personality assessment and 
one of the things that came back really high for me is my resilience, which means that mm -hmm. somebody can tell me that my idea is bad directly to my face and it doesn't bother me at all. Like I'll, we're, I'm ready to, to say like, why? And they tell me why. And I go, oh, you're right. That is a bad idea. Do you want to go mm -hmm. get lunch? Like it doesn't, it doesn't break me down, but you know, I've, I've known so many people where that's not the, that's not something that they've, they don't have that reflex when, when somebody criticizes their work, it hurts. And like, they're, they're going to recover and they're going to, they're going to be fine, but they need time. They need to be able to process. And so for me to stand there and say, when somebody tells, you no, shake it off and knock on the next door. That's true for me because it doesn't wreck my day when I get told no. But to somebody who needs time to recover after a rejection, if I tell them to do that and they try to push through it and every rejection just crushes them, mm -hmm. how long before they're completely crushed? Whereas that, you know, maybe that would have worked really well for me. It, they might succeed significantly better by doing way more research and strategically approaching fewer people to decrease the likelihood of getting that rejection so that they have a better shot of not being crushed by it. And I don't know, because I've never done it that way. Maybe that's a terrible idea. But again, this is kind of like, that's kind of where I'm, where I've come to is like stuff that feels very true. You know, if you fail, get up and try again. That seems like it's just a, a cliche aphorism, always true kind of thing. And it sort of is, but you can apply it the same way to each person. And, and so we need to remember that like, I'm comfortable with a lot of things. And I'm uncomfortable with a lot of things. And that list is very different from person to person. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, I think I identify pretty closely with, with you. Um, if there is one thing that I've excelled at in my career, it's, it's, it's that practice of feeling okay with hearing no or, or rejection or whatever else. Um, mm -hmm. And so I've had a similar approach where I like, for example, this podcast, I just, sent you a message. I didn't really think about anything like what if this person ignores me. In fact, the same day that I sent you a message, someone else who also is is someone I look up to uh, insta blocked me when I sent them that message. Oh, weird. And that doesn't bother me. Um, that's just some people <laughs> really don't want to go on podcasts, I guess. <laughs> but there are people who aren't like me who that would be something that might cause them to like give up on running a podcast. Hmm. So in the spirit of, of this being my podcast and me being kind of selfish, uh, do you have advice for kind of your methodology for building those relationships with other people? Because I think I can benefit from that. Um, I mean, I, I think that the, the biggest thing really is just to remember that, you know, you don't, you don't talk people into liking you. You don't trick people into liking you. Um, you just keep showing up and consistently live the values that you want to represent. Mm -hmm. And through doing that, you will attract the people that, you know, share those values and who value the things that you, that you do. And you will kind of naturally drift apart from people who don't. Um, and like, as I've done the work that I've done, I feel like I've, I've seen people who think that I don't do enough and I have to, I have to decide like, is that, is that true or is that a matter of opinion? And like, where could I be doing more? Um, and there are people who think that I do way too much and I have to decide like, is that, you know, again, is that true or, or are there places where I should ease up? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's trying to be open to feedback, but not let the feedback sway you wildly 
and just remembering that so much of success and so and and what I say success in in terms of reaching a goal not necessarily like achieving fame or fortune or whatever the thing is <laughs> that that we would lump up as a success mm-hmm. um so much of of reaching our goals just requires showing up every day and mm-hmm. recognizing that like it's not going to be great right out of the gate you're going to publish blogs that no one listens to you're going to publish podcasts for five listeners you're going to tweet a whole bunch of things that no one ever responds to and that's okay. But if you keep showing up, you will find ways to connect with people. You'll, you'll start to get engagements. You'll find one or two or five people who, who really, who's your message sticks with and and who they, Mm -hmm. they want to see more of what you have to say and they want to join that conversation. And, you know, if you keep showing up, you keep doing it, it, it will snowball. Um, and I, I think that this is true for like, you, you see people who you maybe think they, they don't have the level of skill or expertise or whatever it is that they need to, to get where they are. And if it's somebody that you're seeing and having that opinion about the fact is like, they kept showing up because they, they've showed up enough that now you're aware of them, mm-hmm. you know, so that they're doing the work. Um, and, and that I think is such a, a critical thing to call out is like, you know, it's, it's easy to sit back and be grumpy and be like, oh, well, if only people knew how much I had to offer, or only people knew like what I was capable of, like, well, yeah, sure. But if you don't show them, they'll never know. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, keep showing up and, and be you know, like, think about integrity as from, from me, at least integrity is the highest thing. Like I want to make absolutely sure that the person that I am in my internal monologue is the person that I am with my closest friends, is the person that I am with my colleagues, is the person that I am in public. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's obviously there's nuance there. Like I will have harder conversations or riskier, uh, riskier opinions with people that I'm close to because there's nuance and we can discuss that. But like. I don't have like secret opinions. I don't have secret <laughs> beliefs or or whatever that that don't show up in public. And the way I I try to treat people the way that I that I would want that I expect they want to be treated um and you know the way that that I myself want to be treated uh all the time across all you know whether nobody's looking whether whether everybody's looking because I feel like that's such a it it makes such a big difference like consistency like being even keel is so for me at least i find that to be one of the most important factors in the people that i keep around in my life is that i know that no matter who they're hanging out with no matter what platform or media they're using whether we're in person or or over email or twitter they're going to be the same person every time and um you know i i think that's such a that's such a big thing because that, that, that informs everything else. If you are the same person, then I, you know, you, the, the actions that you have, it's not, it doesn't feel, it's never performative. Um, if I see somebody who's like really, really nice on Twitter and then you meet them offline and they're like, you know, complaining about everybody, it's like, oh boy, you're not the same person. So is your (laughs) Twitter profile, is that just, are you just performing for the world? Um, Mm -hmm. but then when you see somebody who, is super consistent, then if they make a mistake, you'll watch them own that mistake and Mm -hmm. they will, 
you know, they'll, they'll just live up to exactly who you would expect them to be and no matter where it is. And I think that's, you know, that's a big factor in how I choose the people that I associate with. And, and I just try to live that because, you know, again, those are the types of people I want to attract. So I, I hope, um, I hope that I'm doing that. And I, you know, I, I invite my friends and everybody that I interact with to hopefully call me out on it if I'm not like that, because again, Mm -hmm. that's the, (laughs) I, I think that's in my mind, the secret to my success is trying to, trying to be the same person on all sides of the coin. Kind of like I said earlier, I think a lot of people in this industry benefit from having loud opinions and in a way just putting themselves out there. But do you feel like most developers could benefit from doing the kind of stuff you've done where they go out and create content and try to build those relationships? Or do you think that's something that uh, is not ideal for everyone? Um, I think that everybody should should do the things that they find exciting, right? So for Mm -hmm. me, I really enjoy having community interactions. I really enjoy when I get a chance to like help somebody learn something and, and you get to watch that light go on. For other people, when they try to create that content or they put themselves out there, it's completely emotionally draining and like they feel good about it, but they feel like they ran a marathon and and they need a lot of recovery time. And mm-hmm. so like maybe they would professionally benefit, but are they really benefiting or are they, are they kind of sacrificing their mental health for the sake of, of visibility? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like if it's something that you enjoy and if it's something that you want to do, then 100% you should do it because I've never seen anybody like if you are earnestly trying to help the community, I've never seen anybody fail. You, you make, maybe you don't reach millions of people, but you know, you'll probably reach dozens and mm-hmm. showing up at your local meetups has just as big an impact on the people at those meetups as showing up on the main stage at JS Conf or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that sort of thing, you know, if you, if you look at it as the goal being you want to create the community that you want to be a part of, then there's no way to fail at doing that. Just go out and meet people and be, be yourself and, and, you know, try to, try to live the values that you want to see. Um, but again, if it's, you know, there's no one size fits all solution. So if you feel like you're dragging yourself through a conference talk and you want to go hide in your room for a week and a half after to recover from the emotional trauma of it, like definitely don't do that. That's not, it's not worth it. There are probably other ways to get involved. Um, so, you know, I would say to, to the people who want to try it, please try it. If you try it and you like it, keep doing it. If you try it and you don't, or if it just sounds like horrible, terrifying awfulness, don't like, don't beat yourself up over not doing it. There are so many ways to have an impact and get involved that don't require you to be out in public or, or putting your, your reputation into the hands of, of whatever social media platform. Mm-hmm. So one, one question I ask, it's kind of intended to humanize people and make them more relatable. If you're comfortable, I would love you to to share something that you consider yourself to be bad at. So many things. <laughs> I, um, I mean, I, yeah, I can give you a short list. Like I, uh, it personally, I am very bad at dancing. I <laughs> went and tried to take, uh, salsa lessons and I felt like I was kind, kind of improving. Um, 
but I, you're not going to see me like entering dance competitions anytime soon. Um, it's, <laughs> and I think, you know, I'm, I'm very bad at, uh, I'm, I'm very bad at introducing myself. Like mm -hmm. this is a weird thing. I am so not uncomfortable having conversations with strangers or being out in public, but I am so deeply terrible at introducing myself. Like if I walk up to somebody, I am almost assuredly going to come off super weird. I'll be like, hello, my name is Jason. And somehow I've done it in a way that is like, who is it? Well, who is this guy and how do we get him away from us? Um, so <laughs> I have, I've developed this like intense fear of having to introduce myself and I rely on other people to introduce me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and then like professionally, I'm, I don't think that I'm a great manager. Um, I have like, I think that I have the capacity to be good at it, but I think the, the things that I pay attention to by default and the, the lines that I am paying attention to on my like day to day lead me to forget about a lot of stuff. And, and, you know, if I am working with a team, we'll make a list and then I will, you know, we'll break it down into tasks and I just kind of forget. And then I'll mm -hmm. come back on the deadline and be like, how'd everybody do? <laughs> <laughs> um, and if I'm, you know, if I'm being super mindful and like really paying attention, like, sure, I, maybe I can pull it off. But, but typically speaking, I would be better as an individual contributor than as a, a manager just because of where my defaults are. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you actively try to work on those things? Um, I've read a bunch of books on engineering management, on like culture, on trying to recognize and both both self uh, self correct and put guards in place for uh, unconscious and conscious bias, mm -hmm. and trying to think about ways to automate. You know, again, talking about making the right thing the easy thing. How do you automate the stuff that is important? Um, so things like one-on-ones, things like regular product cadence check-ins or, or whatever, that they're all things that if they're just on the calendar and they're going to happen and you just make a deal with yourself that those don't move um, and you'll build your life around those important things, mm -hmm. then they happen and you can do good work. Um, and like, you know, like I said, with the dancing stuff, like I, I, I went and signed up for lessons. It was, it was a thing for my partner and I to do together it was something that made me deeply uncomfortable because it's not, <laughs> it's not part of who I am. I've never mm -hmm. been a dancer. Um, and you know, it, it was, it was like, it's passive exercise. It's not, you know, I like, I like going to the gym, but it's way more fun to exercise when you're not just like there to run on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's like, it, but sometimes you, there are things you just shouldn't work on. Right. Like I, I've talked to, um, one of my, my favorite people in the world is a, a guy named Phil Caravaggio. And he had a quote that has stuck with me for a really long time where he said, um, professionally, you should work on your strengths and let your weaknesses, like delegate your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And personally, you should focus on your weaknesses and rely on your strengths to take care of themselves. Um, and I, that stuck with me a lot because like, professionally, I have this amazing team and I know amazing managers. So I don't need to be a good manager. I can, I can work with an excellent manager and do the things that I know I'm good at. 
um, you know, I, I focus on the the highest value I can bring to the team and I delegate the stuff that I know I'm not good at and I fully let go of it. And I'm like, okay, I am not going to be in control of managing this team. That is your mm-hmm. job. I will follow your lead. But then personally, like being uncomfortable with dancing, um, I know that I have a tendency to uh, just not do things with my partner if they're not in my comfort zone. And so a lot of times she feels like we have, uh, we've got kind of an activity rut. There are certain things that we will do and there are a whole lot of things that we would never do because that's not what I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So this is a conscious effort to take myself out of my comfort zone, do something silly with her that I feel, I feel dumb doing it, but it's, you know, it's me trying to actively work on that weakness and, mm-hmm. and know that the stuff that she's with me for, like, I don't need to work on that. I don't need to, I don't need to get better at what, I don't know. I assume she's just with me for the beard. So I don't need to get better <laughs> at growing a beard. Um, but I, you know, I can trust that to be okay, but I do need to work on the things that get under her skin and the things that, that bother her about me or, or the way that our, our relationship works. Um, I don't necessarily need to fix them. I'm not broken, but if I notice that there are things I do that weaken our relationship, I shouldn't ignore that. I shouldn't say like, ah, we're good enough. We'll be fine. I should, mm-hmm. I should be focusing down on the things that, that, uh, that are going to affect the, my personal relationships. Hmm. That's incredibly valuable, I think. And it's also a really good, uh, framework for determining what things are worth investing in and what aren't. Is that something that as kind of a leader in your current role, you pass on to the people that you're working with, or do you kind of, like you said, step away from that management role and let someone else handle that? Um, I mean, we have conversations about it. So I, I don't do, I, I, this is kind of an interesting thing because I think in a company, there's a difference between leadership and management. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know a lot of CEOs who are really, really good leaders and terrible managers. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of managers who are really good managers, but if they try to get up in front of a room and inspire them or, or get them all pointed in the same direction, they, they struggle. Um, mm-hmm. So in, inside of teams, a lot of times what I'll find myself doing is, is more of the, like, I'll be trying to get up in front of everybody and, and rally everyone and get them excited because we've got these great ideas and all this potential and let's go. But I, then I won't be the tactical part of that. I won't be sitting down with the teams to make a plan and um, and kind of break it down, you know. So I I do talk I talk about this stuff a lot, um, but I'm not sitting down with somebody to say like, okay, how can we how can we take these ideas and break them down into action steps for you? Yeah. So maybe do you mind sharing a little bit about? what you think that dichotomy between leadership and management looks like and how you model it? Um, I mean, I think like this is kind of one of those things that's, it's, um, so like for me, I am someone who is comfortable in front of a crowd and I've done a lot of public speaking and public appearances. So typically speaking, if I need to come up with an analogy if I need to um, find a way to communicate a concept, I've had a lot of practice doing that. So mm-hmm. if I sit down with with a leadership team and or with the company and we decide what we want to accomplish, I'm I'm fairly practiced at taking that roadmap or taking those big ideas and communicating those in a way that is 
engaging and exciting and, you know, trying to get people on the same page and emotionally invested in, in the success of the team and the company and everything. So what I find to be a really good working relationship is to, is when everybody on the team recognizes each other's strengths, then a manager who is going to do a killer job of taking this roadmap and turning it into a roadmap with action steps and, you know, strategic goals and ways to check in and make sure that everything's healthy. I shouldn't, I shouldn't even attempt to do that. I should support them in whatever way they need and otherwise let them do their thing. They're really good at it. Um, mm-hmm. But for them, if they're not comfortable public speaking and they have a tendency to say, get off topic or lose the, lose the thread of the conversation, then maybe they should, you know, they should make the plan and then communicate with somebody like me who is good at, at communicating it outwardly and, you know, let me go wave the banner and, and kind of get the room excited. Cause that's something that I, I enjoy doing and it's something that I'm reasonably good at. Um, and so it's, it's just kind of like, again, figuring out where your strengths and weaknesses are, and then f- building a team of people who you can rely on to fill in all of your gaps. Um, and, and when I've been on teams that are good at this, it is so good because everybody's just humming along doing the thing they're great at. You know, I, I think that that's, it's, there's no better feeling than being on a team where you know who the experts are, but you don't feel like the experts are isolated or, or, you know, you, you don't have that like complete lack of ability for somebody to quit or go on vacation because the company would implode because they're the mm-hmm. only ones who know how something works, but like they clearly have an area of expertise and the, and the biggest thing that they can offer. Um, and good managers, I think, are are good at finding those strengths and organizing them in such a way that those people are valued and um, rewarded for the things that they contribute that have the the highest value. Um, and that typically leads to them feeling most rewarded for the work they enjoy the most. I mean, at least in in my experience on teams, the people work best on the things that they're excited about. So if you line them up with what they're excited about, they're just going to knock it out of the park for you. Hmm. And so a good manager is going to recognize that and find a way to build a team up of people who are really excited about the individual portion and not worried about sharing control or credit. So everybody is able to kind of find their groove and they all collaborate together, but they all know what they own and they know what they can contribute. And then that manager has a, a finely running machine And then they've got someone in leadership or PR or marketing or whatever to kind of be the, um, to be like the, the town crier or the, the, um, you know, the, the barker who can get up there and kind of make sure that everybody understands first what the goals are. And second, why, like, why are the, why are these important? Why are we working on the things we're working on and do that in a way that helps them feel like they're on this journey, they have the context, they have the understanding and, and what's valuable so that they can, you know, go back to their work, owning the things they own with the excitement of having the context and understanding how this rolls up to larger goals and what's really valuable and what's going to move the needle. Yeah. I think that's really insightful and also valuable for people who are working on, on software and, and software engineering teams to understand that there's a difference in those two roles and that not everyone is good at both. In fact, a lot of people are only good at one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, um, 
one of the things that I've heard, uh, my, my old manager at IBM was a, his name was Robin Cannon and he described skills as like paint drips. So they'll give you the, the idea of like a T-shaped developer, right? When that's somebody who like, maybe she knows a bunch of stuff, uh, at like, a at like an introductory level, like there's lots of, of topics where she has some knowledge and then one area where she goes deep. Um, and what Robin talked about is this idea of the paint drip developer and the paint drip developer is somebody who has a broad base of knowledge and varying levels of depth at lots of different areas. So maybe there are, you know, two or three or four areas where she goes real deep and a few areas where she's only got like cursory knowledge and a few areas where she could probably build a project on her own or like manage something, but it would be okay, not great. Right. So then you, you kind of start to identify like every person has multiple core competencies, but there's a spectrum of, of expertise there. Like maybe you're just at the beginning of conscious competence where you can get by, but you're, you know, you struggle a little bit. You don't have a lot of best practices or, or kind of instinctive knowledge, but then at the other end of the spectrum, there's somebody who's been doing it so long that it, you know, they're, they're like expert con concert pianists who can just sit down and play. They're not ever thinking about what their fingers are doing. They just know what the music should sound like. Um, and I, I think, if we, if we look at our teams like that and we start to recognize like, where are the paint drips? Where are all the different skill levels that I personally have? So doing a, a self-assessment to say, what are the things that I both enjoy and am good at? And uh, I, I've done this before by doing like a matrix where you have four quadrants and um, on the, the, the y-axis you would write like, I really enjoy this. I really don't enjoy this. And on the x-axis, you maybe say like, I'm very bad at this to I'm very good at this. And then you just plot things on that matrix. And what you're looking for is the stuff that falls into the, I'm very good at this and I really enjoy this quadrant. Mm -hmm. um, and that's typically the highest value stuff you have to offer to a company and the most personally rewarding. Um, and if you do this for like your whole team, you start to think about like, okay, well, now we can start to see like, all right, I don't really like doing, say, uh, the the accounting, but somebody who's really into accounting, they don't like building the website. So now we know I should be over here doing a website. They should be over there doing the accounting and we should work together because we fill in each other's gaps. And that, you know, those really start to build out these amazing teams when you focus on getting people into the places where they both have competence and enjoyment. Um, and then you, in, by doing that, you also have a growth map where it's like, well, I really enjoy this, but I need to grow this skill. Well, great. That's the thing you work on in your 10% time, or that's the thing that, that your manager will work with you on to get you training for so that you can increase your competency and get it up into that, that quadrant for, you know, you're, you're both really enjoying it and you're great at it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I think it very rarely happens. And every time I've seen it actually happen, it's just tremendously valuable. Hmm. Cool. Jason, if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? I have a Twitter. Um, so twitter.com slash jlangsdorf. I have a website where I have um, a bunch of blog posts and miscellaneous stuff linked up. It's at langsdorf.com. And you can watch me stream. I'll do live pair programming twice a week in the occasional special program every once in a while on twitch.tv slash jlangsdorf. Um, typically speaking, I'm going to be everywhere under Jay Langstorff. So just, uh, I'm the only Jason Langstorff in the world. So if you Google me, I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time and your honesty and sharing, uh, some of the things you think 
uh, really important uh, as a as a software engineer and somebody who's uh, working in the developer advocate space. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on, Jacob. It was uh, it was really fun talking to you, and I appreciate you letting me ramble for an hour. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.